tell of what God's done in our life. And um, I really don't know how I would have walked that journey without knowing God and going to his word, particularly when the battle was raging in my mind when I couldn't sleep at night and I was on my own. You know, I realized that Satan was out to destroy me, but God, I thought, I have to go on to, I have to get into the word. I have to get God to give me a word that I can stand on to do battle with because it's only in the word of God that we can defeat that enemy. And um, I know, you know, each of us have our story and the times when things are difficult, but, uh, but God is faithful and I've proved that. And I've asked him for some unusual things. I asked him for a young man with muscles one time and he provided. <laughs> Quite miraculously out in my little backyard where nobody goes and he appeared, helped me out and disappeared. I haven't seen him since. So God is good, isn't he? God is good. Like We don't often ask for these unusual things, but I'd been on my knees that morning, said that that's what I need not thinking that I would get it and then doing the work and then when, when he appeared and then disappeared and I went inside, it was like God said, well, that's what you asked for. And I thought, oh, I've got to go out and thank him and I couldn't find him. I should have told him it was an answer to my prayer. <laughs> but God is good and God is faithful. So I just pray and ask that God will speak into our hearts this morning. You need to hear from him. You need to hear from heaven, not from me. But I'm, I believe that God wants to speak into each woman's heart this morning. Okay, we'll just pray. Father, I just pray that you present yourself here with these precious ladies. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak truth into their heart, that they'll go away knowing that they've heard from you, the only wise God. Just, Lord God, use my words that they will be your words to touch hearts. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Now, my, um, my heritage is sort of Latvian, Belarus, Russian. And so I thought I'd just share a little story with you because, you know, God pursues us. No man pursues God. God pursues us. And um, we're drawn to him when we know the truth of his love. And that draws us because everybody has a need for love. We all have a hunger in our hearts. And God pursues us because he loves us not because we're worthy of love, but because he loves in a way that is undeserving, but his, his nature is love and he loves and he pursues. And I thought, you know, we sometimes think life has its coincidences, but I don't believe life has coincidences. Um, sometimes I don't like what happens, but that doesn't mean that it's not part of what God's allowed. Nothing gets to me that doesn't go through Jesus because I'm covered by him. And sometimes what he allows, he obviously thinks I can deal with, even though I don't think I can deal with it. So when I read this little thing, and as I was preparing, I thought, oh, I've got those notes somewhere. Do you think I could find them? So I Googled it. You know, Google is a good friend sometimes, isn't he? Um, sometimes it's a bit of a pain. But um, so I just, this is a little story about something that happened in Russia. In the 30s, Stalin ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. In a place called Stavropol, Russia, this order was carried out with a vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated and multitudes of believers were sent to the gulags, prison camps, 
um, where most died, unjustly condemned as enemies of the state. Many years later, there was a group that worked with them. They call it co-mission. It was a, a group that went in. They sent a, st uh, a, a team to st Stavropol because they were wanting some Bibles. This, the city's history wasn't known at that time, but when the team was having difficulty getting Bibles shipped from Moscow, someone mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside of the town where these confiscated Bibles had been stored since Stalin's day. Obviously, they weren't destroyed. Isn't God amazing? After the team had prayed extensively, one member finally mustered up the courage to go to the warehouse and ask the officials if the Bibles were still there. Sure enough, they were. Then the commissioners asked if the Bibles could be removed and distributed again to the people of Stavropol. The answer was yes. The next day, the team returned with a truck and several Russian people to help load the Bibles. One helper was a young man, a skeptical, hostile agnostic who had come only for the day's wages. As they were loading Bibles, one team member noticed that the young man had disappeared. Eventually they found him in a corner of the warehouse, weeping. He'd slipped away hoping to take a Bible for himself. What he didn't know was that he was being pursued by the hound of heaven. What he found shook him to the core. In the inside page of the Bible, he picked up had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her personal Bible. Out of the thousands of Bibles still left in that warehouse, he stole the very one belonging to his grandmother, a woman who throughout her entire life was persecuted for her faith. No wonder he was weeping. God had powerfully and yet tenderly made himself known to this young man. Such was his divinely appointed meeting with the sovereign Lord of the universe the hound of heaven who tracked him down to that very warehouse. Remember Jeremiah's words, can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do not I fill both heaven and earth, he declares. Isn't that, isn't God amazing? And I just think to myself, you know, nothing is coincidence. God, he, he pursues us. He loves us and he pursues us. Um, and so, you know, what a privilege we have to study the Bible. I started KYB uh, 42 and a half years ago when I had a little child who didn't want to be left in the crèche and screamed them all the time. Um, then I stopped for a while because we moved house, but as soon as it started up again, I continued to go. And I've always felt that it's been a great tool to get to know what God wants to say to me and to have the encouragement of other women that are doing the same thing. This word of God that we study, it gives answers to life's needs. I always, you know, when God ever called me to do something, I used to say, I need a word, of, I need a word to stand on God because when things go wrong, I'll fall apart unless I can stand on your word. And um, so he would always give me a word and I was a bit, you know, of a sceptic. And I'd say, I need it a second time in a public place. And he did that for me. The third time he did it in a public place, I really didn't want it to be in a public place because it was something that I felt that I didn't want anyone else to know. But because I'd tested God before, he thought, oh, I'll do this again, just to give her a little bit of a, 
a surprise. <laughs> so God, I mean, God is, um, he knows what we can bear. He doesn't, he might embarrass us a little bit, but he doesn't ever knock us down. Um, and so, you know, when we go to the word of God, it has the answers that we need. He speaks into our heart. Um, when, when my husband died from melanoma, he was only, when it hit his liver, he only lived the 19 days. And I was always scared on my own at night when my husband wasn't there. And, uh, and I couldn't sleep after that. For two and a half years, I would get fit for, I lived in the hospital with him for the 19 days. I had to put him in hospital because his kidneys shut down and he um, passed out and I couldn't do anything. So I lived in the hospital and looked after him and I was awake every hour. So I couldn't sleep after that. I would wake up every hour. I'd have two or three hours during the night and that was it. But you know, when you're tired and the night hours are long, Satan, does, he doesn't care that you're grieving. He wants to destroy you in your grief and the battle is in the mind and he attacks our mind and tells us all the negative things about us so that I could see, you know, after a while I thought this is going to, if I didn't know God and didn't have a relationship with God, it would have been very easy for me to have taken an overdose. I'd had enough. But, you know, I, I thought to myself, I have to go to the word of God. The word of God has authority. I have to go to the word of God. God, give me a verse. Give me a verse that I can stand on. And he gave me Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 that says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God is faithful and his word is truth. He is amazing God. You know, it says, the word, it says that the, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And what do you do with a sword? You do battle with a sword. So when you come against situations where you need to, need to do battle, we use the sword of the spirit. Uh, in Hebrews, it says, you know, that, that uh, the word is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest double-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, which is a bit scary at times. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God, and he's the one to whom we're accountable. Uh, that makes us think about what we do, you know, because we're accountable to God. I think some of us forget that at times, and I know, you know, in my life I'm sure I've spoken words that I wish I hadn't spoken, but I've asked God's forgiveness and they're covered by the blood. But when they're not... You know, we stand before a holy God and we're accountable. Um, Satan attacks our mind with lies. It says in John 8:31, which we did in our first half of John's study, that Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies and he attacks our minds with lies at a very vulnerable time. If we believe the lie, we turn nothing into substance. The lie doesn't have any substance un until you believe it. Then you give it substance and it, and it has a lot, it can do a lot of damage. So we need to recognize the lie as a lie and, and get into God's word and use it. Once we've given substance to the lies, we carry them around as weights, which can turn into strongholds in our life. What's, what are strongholds? 
Ed Silvoso, in his book, That None Should Perish, describes strongholds in this way. He says, a stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable situations that we know are contrary to the will of God. But they're not unchangeable and they're not truth. And we need to learn that, you know, we need to tear down these strongholds. You know, um, in Corinthians, Paul says, uh, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning to destroy false arguments, false arguments that come up in your mind. We do battle with the sword of the spirit, with God's word. That's why we need to know it. We need to know what it says. Um, we need to, if we're followers of Christ, we need to be faithful to his teachings. Um, and how can we be be faithful only by knowing the word of God, by studying the word of God. It says in Timothy, you know, a study to show yourself approved to God. We need to know the word of God. And, and it says in the Old Testament in Hosea 4, it says, um, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And without knowing the word of God, we, Satan doesn't just, remember when he tempted Jesus, he used God's word, but he can sometimes just twist it enough. And if you don't know it, very well we believe the lie um, and we need to know the word of God so we can do battle with it um, King David you know the shepherd who was the shepherd he said I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not might not sin against you when we know God's word we know right and wrong better we know what we need to do we know what we shouldn't do um, God spoke to Joshua in the in Joshua's book he says Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be secure, so you'll be sure, sorry, to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. That was God's word to Joshua when he began to lead the children of Israel. And in Proverbs we read, pay attention to my words, they are life to those who find it. They are life because we know we have a relationship. So as we look at the Word of God, we see that the Old Testament is about behaviour and the New Testament is about belief. Both are important as belief will dictate our behaviour. So we need to know the Word of God. I was speaking to a Catholic friend in Adelaide and she said, do you only read the Old Testament? I think I must have just been quoting Old Testament. And I went, no, no. I said, and she kind of looked and I said, you know, they, they both complement each other. I said, you use one because... The word of God does never contradict it itself. It's always complementary to each other. People say it does contradict, but when if, if they read it in context and they read it as it should be, not just taking one little bit out here that suits their own little argument, they'd find that uh, you know, the word of God does complement each other. So as we studied the book of John part one, some, the, for those that did do that, uh, you would know, and I'll just go a little bit over that, and it says that uh, it was written be in the, between the years of 85 and 95 AD, so it was a little time after Jesus uh, died, and it was probably written from Ephesus, and the dating is supported by a little bit of papyrus fragment that was found and dated 125 AD. So there is, there is historical data that will confirm um, about what time it was written. It's this little bit of papyrus thing, if you ever look for it, it's called P52. That's, that's its um, technical name, P52. Um, 
Now, so when John's writing this, John, John's gospel is quite different to the other gospels, as you probably would know from having studied it. Um, and, and John, in his 90s now, reflects on the Old Testament mis mystery that was revealed, which transformed his life from an illiterate fisherman to a saint, an amazing transformation. He spent most of the latter part of his life about 30 years living in Asia Minor and more specifically in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, and a few years in exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, in, in part one study of John, we read in John 1.14 that the word became human or flesh. Um, I quote a little bit from the New Living because it's, it's a little bit more story for, uh, easy to read as far as understanding the whole context for most people. Um, so the word became flesh or human and made his home among us. This same life was with the Father from the beginning. The infinite life of the Father became visible before our eyes in a human person. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to understand who Jesus was, but we need to understand that he was God. He was the man Christ Jesus. He was God in human form. Um, and this word always was. Remember, it was in the... John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he, he attaches himself to that, the Godhead or, or God, but God is spirit, and so spirit can indwell flesh. So, um, and I always used to wonder how Jesus walked through walls, but um, then I read somewhere that, you know, the Creator overcomes the created quite easily. He can walk through anything. Um, I can't do that. Superman used to do that, I think, or in, in, in my younger days. But, um, but Christ can do that. He's quite amazing. And we need to recognise that he is, he is above us and he is um, greater than us and he can do more than what our human understanding can sometimes comprehend. Um, his incarnation, or the taking on of human form, um, includes... He includes mankind in the eternal friendship of the Father and Son. Remember that? He, he, John affirmed this in his writing. He said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and we are, I, we are in you. He wants to be in us. He wants to indwell us. He does that by his Holy Spirit. Um, and, and John also wrote in his letters, in the epistle, 1 John, he, he writes, he's given us understanding to know him who is true and we are in him who is true. You know, we need to understand him and we are in him and he is in us. None of the other disciples captured the conclusion of Christ's mission better than John, who wrote these words about Jesus. He wrote, when I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Unlike the other Gospels, John doesn't go into the historic account of Christ but rather writing to the next generations about the reality of a fellowship of the highest order. He wants us to know what it's like to have fellowship, how to have fellowship, how to be one with him. Christ is the revelation of our completeness. Of his fullness, it says in the word of God, of his fullness we have all received grace, undeserved, for grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He, the only begotten of the Father, is our guide, who accurately declares and interprets the invisible God within us. We saw that in our first part of study of John, 
John's an amazing gospel. I always find that every time I read it, God gives me another truth to understand. It's quite, um, quite an amazing book. And if you pray before you study it, God reveals his heart to you. It's quite amazing. So, so we need to remember that we were on God's mind much longer, much uh, earlier than when we were conceived. In our makeup, we are God kind, not just human kind, but we're God kind, with an appetite for more than what bread and senses can satisfy. There's always a need there that's more than what bread can satisfy. Jesus proves that we came from above. It wouldn't be possible for man to ac access the heavenly sphere if man didn't originate from there. The Son of Man is in heavenly places in the bosom of his Father. It said that in John 10. He says, I am in the Father, the Father and I are one, even while on this planet in an earthly body. Jesus' death and resurrection pre prepared a place for us so that we might be where he is. Why? Because his death and resurrection makes us righteous and stand holy before a holy God. And remember Jesus' words in John 3 where he said to Nicodemus, unless you're born from above. Now the Greek word from that, of that born from above is a word, it sounds like anothen, but it means unless you originate from above, you, could, you, you couldn't access these heavenly realities. You'd have no appetite for heavenly things. It's a longing for what we once were attached to and that was uh, created in God's image to be with God. And I always like that verse in, in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He said eternity in the hearts of men. You know, we look, we see young people looking for relationships because they have a longing to be loved. There's something in them that's looking. Then they get married after a few years. What's happened to that love? The relationship can splinter a little bit. Why? Because they think their husband is Jesus and can can satisfy the hunger of their soul. And nothing can satisfy that except the, the relationship restored to the loving God who created us. And if we get that right, we can deal with the human relationships because the partner that we have also has this hunger and this need. And we need to not put those big expectations on them that they can do what God wants to do in your life or what Jesus wants to be in our life. And so we know that we began in God. We're not the invention of our parents, as much as some people think they are when, when we hear about what goes on in the world. In Christ, we discover that we're not here by chance or by accident or by the desire of an earthly parent. Neither are we the product of a mere physical conception. We exist by the expression of God's desire to reveal himself in the flesh. We're created in his image. And remember when he said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And it wasn't just for Jeremiah, it's for all of us. God knew us before we were formed in, in our mother's womb. God's eternal invisible word, his spirit thought became flesh. And James writes in the first chapter, he says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. He chose to give us birth by his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possessions. When that re relationship is restored, we are his prized possessions. Sometimes that's hard for us to understand when, if we've been rejected by human relationships. But it's a truth that Satan doesn't want you to know. 
but we have to believe it and say, Lord, I don't always feel that, but it's a truth. And I know, you know, when, when we've lived a life where we've had rejection, it's not always easy to understand. And to think that, you know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I always think, you know, having been, um, been conceived in a womb where I was supposed to be aborted, I know that I was God's plan to keep living and I'm still here after three times nearly dying. I'm still here. And I think, wow, God, I think I've passed my little use-by date by now. I think I've had enough now. <laughs> but God, out of, you know, out of his goodness, when he has good plans for you, nothing can thwart that. Even human plans can't destroy that. doesn't matter what um, the people that we're given to to care for in our, in our young life may not want us. We know that God, if he has a plan and he wants you to fulfil his plan, nothing's going to change that. John was also the disciple who, when he spoke about himself, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think that's amazing. Like, he knew who he was, didn't he? He knew that the relationship that was there. He was, he was very secure in that. I don't know if I'm always that secure in that love. I kind of, you know, you do something and you think, oh, God must be so disappointed in me. But, you know, um, if we recognise that he loves us despite our faults. And it's, you know, we always, I always look at a relationship with, between a mother and a child. Um, it doesn't matter how naughty they are or how they disappoint us. We, we would never, we'd never, if that child came running to us, to want to put its arms around our neck. There's no way we'd reject that child. A mother's love, there are some mothers that I don't understand their behaviour, but basically when you um, have a normal healthy lifestyle, you don't reject that child that you gave birth to. And um, you know, you are loved. And so, you know, God loves us even more than that. I remember praying for my eldest daughter when she was she moved away from home. She went to Sydney to work, and I struggled with that a little bit. And I, I prayed for her, you know, that God would take care of her. How can I take care of her when she's not living under my roof? And yet God said to me in my quiet time, I love her more than you do. I said, you can't, God, uh, because we know how much a mother's heart loves, and yet God loves even more. And so when the disciple John says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he was secure in that, I think to myself, oh, to be secure in that love. There are times when I am and times when I can't think that that, you know, when we don't like ourselves very much because we've done something that we're disappointed in. Um, but, you know, God loves us with an undeserving love. Um, and he wants to reveal the mysteries of heaven to us. I think that's quite amazing. Um, and John knew that too. John, because he was secure in that love, how did he get the security of that love? By remaining close to Jesus. Remember, everywhere he, Jesus was, John seemed to be right alongside him or he was leaning on him or doing something. He was always close to him. He always heard the words he said. You know, Peter would say to him, you ask him, who's going to betray him? You know, you ask him, you're the one sitting next to him, you ask him. But John stayed close and by remaining close to Jesus... He reveals the mysteries of heaven to us. How can we remain close to Jesus? By reading his word, knowing what he wants to say to us. 
by spending time in prayer, speaking to him and listening for him. He wants to speak mysteries into our hearts, the truths of, of his word. He wants to reveal them to us. It's funny how you read the word of God when you've been praying about something and all of a sudden a verse that you're sure you've read a hundred times pops out and you think, oh, I've never seen that before. Why? It's because God wants to reveal a truth to you. He wants to speak into your heart. He wants to speak life. Throughout the book of John, we see um, in this gospel, we see John introduce Jesus by seven key titles. He uses seven key titles to introduce him. He introduces him, half of these were done in the beginning. Um, he introduces him as the Word. He introduces him as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, King of Israel, Son of God and Son of Man. And only in John's Gospel will we find the I Am identities of God, of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. That was in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am in 8. I am the door of the sheep in 10. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I and my father are one in 10. I am the way, the truth and the life, which we'll see in the next study. I am the vine in, the, in 15. And in each of these declarations, that John made about Jesus, we see that I identifies Jesus with the name of God. From Exodus 3.14 it says, I am, that's my name, that's how I'm to be known, I am. And so Jesus identifies himself with the deity of his father by, by calling himself I am, and John records that. John obviously had revelation to know that this was important and this is what we need to read. As we, be, as we begin to look at John part two, we see that it's about relationship, unity, and carrying the presence of God. That's what we'll be looking at. Um, before, I, before I just go, do an overview of that, I, I, I do Word for Today, and I read in, um, I think it was um, in November sometime, this little story about how sometimes we need to listen to what God wants to say to us, and sometimes change our direction. Um, that's not always easy for people that like to make plans and like to follow them through without changing. This was in the official magazine of the Naval Institute and the reporter was a man called Frank Koch. And uh, he was reporting on this situation that happened at sea. He says, a battleship was coming in for manoeuvres in heavy weather. Shortly after the sun went down, the lookout reported a light in the distance. So the captain had the single ma signal man send a message. We're on a collision course. Advise you change your course 20 degrees. That's what he's saying to the light that he sees. Minutes later, a signal came back. Ad advisable for you to change your course. The captain angrily ordered that another signal be sent. I am a captain. Change course 20 degrees. Again came the reply. I'm a seaman, second class. You'd better change your course. Furious by this point, the captain barked a final threat. I'm a battleship. Change your course. The signal came back. I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> the captain changed his course. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes we think that we have the authority 
and we're not going to change, but sometimes there are obstacles where we just need to listen a little bit and change our course. I thought, yeah, that's a really good example of, of when we're determined that we're right and, we, and because we think we have position or age or something that makes us, um, makes us the one that has authority, uh, we sometimes need to change our course. And, um, and so as we look at, at this John chapter 2 and we look at relationship, you know, the relationship that Jesus wants with you, the relationship that he longs for that you and he might have and with the Father and with him through his Holy Spirit and with you. Um, and I've just, I've just got a little map of, of Israel that I'm going to put on the, on the screen there. And I just want to show you something. Just about there, that part of the map. Um, and then Jerusalem is here. It's, it's about, the road distance now is about 176 kilometres somewhere in that region. When we, when we look at chapter 11 um, of John in our first in our study, I haven't looked at the book because I thought I don't want to use what's written in there and I don't want it to sort of... So if, if when you read it you think, oh, Lisa went over that, she shouldn't have. Um, I just want to give you a little bit of clarification. Jesus was up... Near the, near the Sea of Galilee, when he heard about Lazarus dying, because I used to look at the I used to look at that chapter, and he said um, it seemed like it was the day after or two days after he heard that he said, "Oh, let's go down to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It's not very far from Jerusalem." And then he said, by the time he got there, he was dead four days. And I used to think, yeah, he must have walked slow. But then I realised how far they walked. I am amazed at how far they walked. I looked. I was looking at. Um, I was looking at how far Elijah walked. You know, Mount Mount. Um, what was that? Mount Mount. No, 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 no. The one down in my map. It's it's not. It's not even. It's not even on that one because it's further down the hill. Mount Sinai is right down here. Right down here near the Red Sea. And Elijah, God told Elijah to walk to a place up here in Syria near Damascus. And I thought, oh, remember when the ravens fed him and he had to go up there? And I thought, that's, that's as far as walking from my place to the Queensland border. I thought, wow, they were very, they were very fit people, weren't they? Um, and, and yet God told him to go there. So when, when, uh, when we look at chapter 11... And Jesus said, come, we're going to go to Bethany because he'd heard, I don't know how he heard, like by, by the time donkeys took the message up there, it would have taken a while, but um, he heard that Lazarus was sick and by the time he got there, he'd been dead four days. So in chapter 11, you'll look at that, but you'll also see that, that that's the shortest verse in the Bible is in chapter 11, it's Jesus wept. Um, and we see, why did Jesus weep? Think about it. Why did Jesus weep? He was standing outside the tomb, just about ready to call him back to life again. Why did he weep? And as I thought about that verse, and I thought, Jesus loved that family. They were kind to him. They were keen to hear his teaching. But he saw the devastation that sin brought into lives, and that was death. 
and he saw the grief that sin brought and it touched his heart. He had the feelings and, and he saw what grief it was and it said Jesus wept. Jesus has a tenderness. You know, people say, if God is God, why does he allow sickness? Why does he allow death? But you know, it wasn't God's choice to bring sin into the world and the, and the result of sin is death and we have sickness. And God's heart grieves too because he's, you know, Jesus um, wants us to know that this world isn't as God intended it to be. But he said, whoops, later on and my page has just disappeared. Um, and he, he said later, you know, we'll go on um, to see that Jesus says, I go to prepare a prayer place for you. We'll see that in something. So, so chapter 11 is an interesting chapter for you to read about the empathy that Jesus feels, his heart, his, his heart of love for the grieving, for the hurting, for the results of sin in your life. Chapter 13, um, we read of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, showing that, you know, if you want to be a leader, we need to sometimes uh, serve others. We need to show that in the service that we give. Chapter 14 begins with an amazing verse showing that even though troubles may come into our life, and remember Job says man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, um, don't let trouble get into your heart. Troubles will come. That's what life brings into our world because of because of what's in this world now. So trouble will come, but Jesus says, don't let trouble get into your heart because we react and we act out of what's sitting in our heart. And if trouble starts to infect and affect your heart, then we'll see it um, outworked in your living. And he says, troubles will come, but don't let it get into your heart. And chapter 14, chapter 14 um, closes with that beautiful verse that Jesus wants us to experience peace. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. What is peace? Peace is the atmosphere of heaven that he wants to release into your world. That's what peace is. I remember, you know, um, because I used to be scared if my husband went away for the night, I'd leave with the lights on. <laughs> Um, to make people think, I don't know, that I was awake all night. I don't know what, what I left the light on for, but it made me feel better. And, um, and, you know, from the time my husband died, I have never been scared at night. It's like the atmosphere of heaven came into my house and God has kept me in peace. He said, I'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on me because he trusts in me. And, and it was given to me even though I probably doubted that I'd have it. But it was, some, it was a gift he gave me, an undeserving gift that God gave me. It was his peace. And we know that that's the atmosphere of heaven and it invades our world if you allow him to. Fear is, is debilitating. Fear stops us from, from doing anything rational. Or I was so scared one time when my husband went away when my children were little, but I left the key in the front door. I locked everything else, I locked the windows, locked everything and forgot that I'd left the key in the front door. The next morning when I went, it was when the milkman used to come, I went out, oh, there's my keys in the front door. That's really nice. <laughs> I was scared enough thinking I'd locked myself in. Had I realised I'd left the key, it would have been a little bit of a tragedy. Um, 
Then we go on, chapter 15, it says, it shows us how to live and the results of relationship with Jesus. When you look at chapter 15, ask God to teach you what he wants you to know about the relationship that he wants you to have with him. He wants you to have it, but you need to search for it and, you, and he will give it to you because that's his heart's desire. And all he wants is for you to long for it as well and he'll respond. Um, chapter 17, Jesus prays for unity in our relationships with all believers. That was his heart. He wants unity. And remember in the Psalms it says, where there's unity, God commands blessing. So when there's unity, and uh, you know, in some churches where there are divisions, you think, well, Satan doesn't need to do much. They're doing enough damage themselves. No one's gonna wanna go there with, with disunity. So disunity in families, disunity in churches, uh, are very, is very destructive and Jesus knew this and so he, so he um, prays for us that we might have unity with one another so that we can, we may not always agree, we can disagree with each other but that doesn't mean that the unity is damaged. That, okay, I don't see it your way. Maybe God will change my thinking but, you know, uh, we're entitled to think differently. God can change the heart. If we feel that other person's wrong, we can pray for them. God changes hearts, not me. Um, I remember I used to, I used, when I, my husband was an only child, um, he wasn't very handy man because he, he was a bit spoilt by his mother and he did a lot of sporting things, sailing and swimming and all this, and football. Uh, and his father used to do a bit of mechanical work in, in the car and that, and he'd say, I, you know, you don't know what to do, and he used to not let him help. So he wasn't very, very handy. Uh, so I used to do all the fix-it jobs. Um, I changed taps, I did everything, and then I needed to change... It was a Saturday, and I was going to change the washer on, this, on the tap in the laundry, and uh, my husband said, oh, I'll do it. I went, oh, OK, OK, I'll let you do it. Next thing I hear... Lisa really loud yelling I came running and he forgot to turn the water off outside didn't he and he's got his thumb in the tap and the water's just you know like funny home videos I, I, I laughed and I, I said oh just go and turn, the, turn, the, turn off the water outside but um, yes so he wasn't real handy he wasn't um, he didn't really know how to do little odd jobs but but so we're all a little bit different and we all, you know, want to, want to help one another. And I've forgotten where I was going with that little bit of a story I got carried away with. <laughs> Remembering what that looked like <laughs> was quite a funny picture. Um, in chapter 19, we read about how Jesus took in his body what I deserve so that I might get the victory that he deserved. Uh, it's a story that Every time I read it, I, I don't understand how he could love so much that he was sinless, he was the son of almighty God and he took my sin on his body and he nailed it to the cross so that I could have the victory um, that he deserved for what he did in walking in obedience to the Father's will. And then chapter 20, Jesus prepares his disciples to be carriers of his presence and a release of his power that they were to pray and wait expectantly for. It says in chapter 20, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But they weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost. And, you know, when we read the Old Testament, we see uh, a lot of godly men that the Holy Spirit came upon them and it rested on them 
and equipped them to do the task God had ordained for them, but they were never totally filled with it, that it became part of their being. But, you know, God was preparing his disciples and said he breathed on them uh, and said, um, receive the Holy Spirit. And they, it was like it was waiting there in anticipation to in, infill because he said, until I go to be with the Father, I can't send you another comforter. So we'll read about that in chapter 20. And chapter 20 ends with the purpose that, John, that this book was written. It says... In, in verse 31, it says, These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That was the purpose of writing it. John's gospel was written that we might understand the relationship of you with Jesus Christ, your Saviour, and with relationship to Father God. And the last chapter, the, chapter 21, includes Jesus' challenge to Peter. Remember, um, poor old Peter, after he denied him three times, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? When you look at the Greek of this New Testament verse, twice Jesus said, uses the word agape, the third time he uses phileo. Peter's response was always phileo. It was never agape. Agape is the love. When, when we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, it's agape love. It's a God love. It's the nature of God. God is love. <clears throat> and when, so when Jesus asked him first time using this word, um, Peter was thinking more of the relational side of things. One of the versions that I read, Peter's response was not using, you know, when he says, do you love me? It says, you know, I'm your friend, uses that word. But it's a little bit deeper than just that word. Um, because, because agape love is... Um, is the nature of God. It's an unselfish, undeserving love shown by deliberate choice, ready to serve, and when it's seen in a believer, it identifies them with the character of God. So it doesn't matter whether the other person loves you or not. It doesn't matter if they're deserving of that love, but it's because God living in me and his nature is in me that I can love the unlovely. And so you know, when he asks him this, Peter was more about the relationship of a friend, uh, that kind of a love. Um, and, and with that friendship, it's something that you kind of feel you deserve because you've built a relationship. And so that's why he uses And then Jesus in the last one says, uses the word phileo. He says, do you love me as a friend, as a deserving friend? And he says feed my sheep. He gave him then a commission to do something. And I always think it's very interesting that after that he says to, um, to Jesus, well what about this chap? What about John? You know, Like when God gives you a task and you say, well why do I have to do Like somebody gives you a task, you say, well, why, what about them? Uh, and I always remember that verse when, when you think, well I've got enough on my 
um, you know, in my basket to do, and I'm being asked to do this, and I think, you know, if I can do it, if I've got the health to do it, and the ability to do it, don't look at the other person. Because of what Jesus did, we can do that. And so, um, John also tells us in John 18, 37, the reason why Jesus came. And it says, for this reason, Jesus' words were, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into, into the world to testify to the truth. And the truth is who he was, because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, to testify that he was God and that in him was all truth. And we know that this is what, Je what Jesus thought about, what he prayed about, what he planned for, what he worked towards, what he sacrificed for, and he died and rose again for, and finally he accomplished God's will and he said, it is finished. He took back everything that Satan has taken from you. He took your sin and he nailed it to the cross. And when we come to know Jesus in a relationship and we invite him into our life and ask him to forgive us of our sins, he, he cleanses us, he says, from all unrighteousness and he makes us worthy and he makes us stand righteous with God. And I always used to say when I would speak to the girls' brigade girls, you know, we stand before God with sin making us so dirty and Jesus comes along when we accept him and he wraps his righteousness around us like a coat and that's what God sees. He only sees the righteousness of Jesus in our life when we say to Jesus, yes, I accept you into my life and I want, I believe that you died for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin and I believe that. And so... Jesus knew his destiny. He knew what the Father's will was for him. And he knew that by fulfilling this destiny, he'd change the world forever. The question to you is, as you study John, do you know what your destiny is? Some of us might think we're coming, like when I say I'm coming to the end of my use-by date. Um, God, while we're walking this earth, God wants to use us. I always say to grandmothers, pray. If you can do nothing else, if your health prevents you from doing anything else, pray for your family. I had a praying grandmother. She loved the Lord. And I know that she prayed for her very youngest sister who was still living in Latvia and was an actress on the stage and played a lot of dramatic roles, which took a lot of emotion. And she ended up having a nervous breakdown. And after my grandmother died, my dad got a letter from this aunt saying how she'd met Jesus. She was in such a depressed state. She said, God, if you're real, let me know who you are. And she went out in the winter time, out into a grove of trees, and she saw the Lord, and she fell down at his feet. She said, I saw and felt his warmth, and I invited him into my life to heal me because she said I was no use to anyone. And I thought, Grandma prayed for that. She never saw the change, but you know, God hears every prayer. So for every grandmother here, or everyone that has a relationship with any child, pray for that child, that they might come to know Jesus. We may not see it, and we may be hurt by what they're doing in their life at the moment, but pray for them. God's heart is with you. He says, if you pray according my, to my will, I hear and answer. 
And God's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we're praying according to his will. He hears our prayers. It has much authority in the heavenlies. And as you study John, my prayer for each one of you is that you might find God's will for your lives as you search the scriptures and you wait on him for his direction because he's faithful. Amen. Thank you.